Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to the CBS Travel Hour with Peter Greenberg. He's America's most recognized and respected frontline travel news journalist. And in this podcast, Peter Greenberg holds in-depth interviews with travel industry insiders, giving listeners practical news they can use on topics ranging from the shrinking carry-on luggage allowances to traveling through the Middle East. This is the CBS Travel Hour with Peter Greenberg. And welcome to another edition of the CBS Radio Travel Hour. I'm Peter Greenberg, travel editor for CBS News. On the dock today, we have the president and CEO of Hawaiian Airlines, Mark Dunkerley, who, who uh, has an interesting position in the world of aviation because chances are most of you have not flown his airline, and those you have may not know all the places they even go, which is a rather interesting and extensive route, uh, route network. And, uh, of course, in this world of shrinking capacity, uh, ultra-long-haul carriers coming to the market, other names you may not have heard of, uh, I thought it was a good idea for us to sit down and, and catch up. So we're doing this, of course, from his headquarters in Honolulu. Mark, thanks for joining me. Oh, well, you're welcome. And great to see you, Peter. You know, I go back to the original days of, of Hawaiian Airlines, and I actually can go back that far, I'm sorry to tell you, even before you came in. Hard to imagine that. Know, thanks so much. <laughs> yeah. um, but you were an inter-island carrier, uh, you know, flying narrow-body jets, um, high frequencies because you're doing a number of shuttles every day between the islands. And then all of a sudden I closed and blinked my eyes and all of a sudden there you were flying long haul flights. Yeah. I, so I, the genesis of our business yeah. was, as you've mentioned, flying between the islands of the state of Hawaii. And we do that very, very frequently. Uh, it amounts today to about 25% of of our business. So 75% of our business is our longer haul flights, and that's split between flights between Hawaii and the U.S. mainland, and then the growing part of our network, which is flights between Hawaii uh, and other destinations in Asia, around the Pacific Rim. And I want to get to that in a second, because Hawaii has suddenly become a hub when it never was before. Hawaii was always point to point. I mean, you flew to Hawaii, and you flew back from Hawaii, and, and now you can, you can go continuing on, and we'll talk about that. But when you, when you talk about 75% of your flights being long haul, why the decision to do that? And, and then, how do you compete? Well, it's not 75% of our flights long haul. 75% so of your business. Of our business, of yeah. our revenues are, yeah. are, are, are long haul. Um, the, the reason we've done that is because uh, we see there's a great market opportunity. Demand for the Hawaii vacation is strong. It's been enduring. Long may it stay that way. Uh, and Hawaiian Airlines has positioned itself, I think, rather well to provide the services that the inbound tourist wants to experience when they come to Hawaii. And there's been a formula that's worked very well for us. And it's interesting because when you think of where you go, uh, these days, you know, we've gone, at least in the mainland market, we've gone from eight airlines that were competing for 88% of the market share down to four that essentially own it. And then there are the the little secret guys. And I'm not calling you little, but I am calling you a little bit of a secret because you're out there flying to a lot of different destinations that people don't necessarily even know you fly. 
Yeah, that's right. I mean, we are little compared to the uh, big sort of uh, mega airlines that uh, today dominate the domestic uh, U.S. airline scene. But at the same time, uh, we were the only U.S. airline flying to Auckland. We remain the U.S. airline, only U.S. airline flying to Tahiti, the only U.S. airline flying to American Samoa. We have destinations in Japan that no other U.S. airline serves. We, we fly to Beijing and we fly to uh, uh, to Korea as well. You just so, have to suffer and get to Honolulu first. You, well, it, it, it's <laughs> It's not. A, it's never too, suffering too badly when I know you're coming that. to Hawaii. Right, but it's all, it also changed your fleet of makeup because you go, you went from you know the little baby DC nines to long haul wide bodies. Yeah, we've got one of the youngest fleets flying in the industry uh, at the moment. We've got our, our narrow body operation is operated by Boeing 717 aircraft. We're a terrific airplane, works extremely well for us. And our long haul network is um, flown mainly by the Airbus A330, uh, which in you our. used to have the DC 10s. Yeah, we used to have DC 10s and L1011s at points in the, in the past. In exactly. those days, we used to uh, buy used airplanes and. and from American of, Airlines, I believe. Oh, American Airlines was yeah. one of the places yeah. where we got them from. Um, but nowadays, we buy brand new airplanes, and that's what helps contribute to us having a very young fleet. And it might surprise a lot of people to know that if you take a look at all the major airlines, where'd you come in in terms of on-time performance? 13 years in a row, we're the on-time leader, and it's a source of great pride internally here at the company. And, uh, you know, when we stop and think about what does uh, the visitor to Hawaii really expect out of the airline? Um, uh, first and foremost, obviously, they want a, a safe experience, but shortly thereafter, they want to arrive on time with their bags. Uh, and to cap it off, our, our team do a terrific, terrific job looking after our guests as they come on, uh, to the airport and on board. Uh, and we found that this is a formula that's worked very well for us. And, interestingly enough, if you take a look at the other on-time airlines, the other surprise would be like Alaska. You would think, how could they ever be on time? They're flying in weather situations like nobody else would ever put up with, and yet they're doing great. Yeah, I, I, you know, I think being on time is more than just about weather. I mean, we have good weather here. That actually isn't a big contributor per se to our on-time performance. Uh, our on-time performance is driven largely by the very high-frequency flights we have between the islands of the state of Hawaii. And an airplane will fly 16 times a day, typically, between the islands. That's a lot of cycles. That's a lot of cycles. And if each flight is just five minutes late, by the end of the day, it's an hour and a, almost an hour and a half late. So we're very focused on getting aircraft away on time. And that's uh, that level of focus and attention to detail is what's enabled us to get this uh, uh, this record. I, mean, I remember in the early days of Southwest Airlines, they were very smart in cross-training their people. The guy who pushed the plane out could also write the ticket, could also load the bags. Are you doing the same thing? Well, we're always seeking to do a little bit more of that. Um, uh, it's an industry in which, with all of the training requirements and the regulations, actually makes it quite difficult to accomplish a lot of that. But that's always an ambition of ours, and we keep uh, striving for that. Now, you know, I go back to uh, what former Vice President Joe Biden once said about LaGuardia being a third world airport. And when he said that, I always thought it was somewhat of an insult to other third world airports because <laughs> there's some pretty great third world airports out there these days. Then you have Honolulu Airport. Need some work. Honolulu needs a lot of work, and this is a, a subject about which we've been quite vocal. Um, uh, I, I have to say that I think the current leadership of the airport's part of the solution, not part of the problem. But we are where we are, and where we are is that the airport is not nearly fit for purpose, uh, given the growth that we uh, that we've experienced. And and I mean, you've uh, got, let's talk about your growth. Uh -huh. you, you've gone from how many gates to how many gates? Well, we've gone from having. Uh, 
half of the neighbor island business, which occupied about six or seven gates, to um, having now uh, upwards of uh, 85% of that business. So uh, we, we consume uh, an entire terminal now, the Terminal 2. Uh, but beyond that, we have a lot of wide-body operations, and we don't get our own dedicated uh, gates for in the main, which makes it uh, increasingly difficult to provide the customer service that we want to. Because you're guests. always jockeying around. Yeah, we're always jockeying around. And with that kind of growth, where do you see it going in terms of airports keeping up with you? Because right now, even if they finish LaGuardia when they say they're going to finish it, it's never going to be what it needs to be. Well, we have an airport modernization plan. I think at issue here. Well, is, having the plan doesn't mean anything. Uh, more. Indeed, I think at, at issue is it's just been very, very slow in coming. Um, but when you think about Hawaii in particular, being a state that derives so much money from travel and tourism, you'd think this would be you know topic A. You know, let's let's get this number one on the agenda. I don't think you'll find anybody in the community who's going to sit there and tell you that we have great airport infrastructure. I think that is well understood and well known. Uh, right now, going through the legislature is a bill that would um, take the airport and create uh, effectively an authority for it, which would allow it to be much more nimble and much more quick. At the moment, we're terribly constrained by some of the state's procurement rules and regulations and some of the approaches that they have that uh, delays construction, delays planning, delays um, uh, all the things that I think everybody understands we need to do, and we're big supporters of that bill. I have a philosophy, let's see if you agree with it, that the people who design airports have never flown. I actually think that they shouldn't be paid for their work until they actually have to go out and take a flight somewhere. Because, for example, you go to certain airports in America, and I know they mean well, and you see rocking chairs, and you go, oh, isn't that cute? To me, that means you're going to be here a while. And, you know, I don't know about you, Mark, but I don't go to an airport to have fine dining experiences. I don't go to the airport to entertain my family and friends. I don't go to the airport to see a play or a one-hour drama, although we see a lot of one-hour dramas at the airport. I go to the airport to go through the airport and to get in and get out as fast as I can. And yet the airport model these days is, how do we generate revenue? How do we pay for it? You know, even if you redo the the airport here. And And please don't put rocking chairs in there. It sends the wrong message. Well, I, I, I don't think we would be putting rocking chairs in any terminal of ours. I, and I agree with you. I think what, uh, what the uh, traveler is looking for is, is to be able to move seamlessly and as quickly as possible through the airports. I think where uh, in the generation past that we've, we've really struggled is um, I think there's been a lack of willingness to, to think flexibly. In the last 50 years, I mean, you build a new terminal, you're, you're anticipating that terminal is going to be used for a couple of generations. Not just the next three years. Correct, not yeah. just in the next three years. And if you think of all the changes that have, that have happened, looking backwards 40, 50 years, uh, and imagine how, how is it that we could today build a facility and pretend that the world as we know it today will be the same in 40 or 50 years' time. I mean, that's obviously a ludicrous proposition. So I think the best airports in the world, and you mentioned some, uh, particularly in places like China and Asia in general, we see some terrific airports. They're built to be flexible so that the interior walls can be moved and changed as the needs change from security to airline alliances to lounges. Uh, Flexibility is the key when you're talking about airports. And they're also building ahead of the anticipated growth. They're going to be good for the next 20 years is this based on how many gates they're giving people? They're, they're depending on that. Yeah, it's actually part of a bigger national uh, discussion around infrastructure. I think those of us that travel, and we spend a lot of time in Asia because we have such an important part of our business there. You know what? Hold on to that thought. I certainly We're going to take a quick break, and when we return, more with Mark Dunkerley from Hawaiian Airlines. 
Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Welcome back to the CBS Travel Hour with Peter Greenberg. And welcome back to the CBS Radio Travel Hour. I'm Peter Greenberg, travel editor for CBS News. We're talking to Mark Dunkerley, the president and CEO of Hawaiian Airlines, about infrastructure, my favorite topic. Um, you know, it's one of the things on the Trump administration's uh, campaign pledge, that, you know, a trillion-dollar investment in infrastructure. You know, trains, planes, automobiles, airports. Obviously, you, that that is part of everything that you do when you think about it, because you got to get to the airport. I mean, you got to get on a road, right? Indeed. I mean, there's so many things that go into it, right? Uh, now, not a lot of mass transit here on trains, but everything else applies. And yet, things aren't moving fast. Yeah, I mean, I think it's part of, as I mentioned, part of a national agenda, and I, th- uh, which I, 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 high time, I think there's a dawning awareness uh, that the infrastructure upon which we rely to create economic activity in the United States, and that feeds into things like jobs and exports and competitiveness in general, um, is lacking increasingly when compared to many of the countries, certainly the ones we fly to, where you can see the investment in infrastructure, and you can see how that helps their economies and helps helps them grow. So um, I, I think w- whether... I mean, econ- the airports themselves are economic drivers. Airports are. Uh, we, as, as an airline, are very much in support of uh, modernizing air traffic control. And uh, r- to do that, we think that the system has to be uh, restructured uh, away from some of the, the constraints that are imposed by it being part of the FAA. Well, let's talk about that for sure. a second, because everybody's been talking about next gen for two gens. That's I mean, right. I mean, the, the, stop with this next gen stuff. I mean, you you're already missed two gens. So, there are some people, including the, the current chairman of the, of the House Transportation Committee, who wants to almost privatize it. I mean, is that the answer? Well, I, first of all, I, I don't think we, uh, the airlines are interested in privatizing it. We're certainly not interested in privatizing it. Right. We think it's a, it's a public utility. And as such, uh, the air traffic control system should not be for private gain, but actually be there f- to be used by airlines and other users uh, of the system. But what we, where we completely and uh, align ourselves with some of these ideas. And um, uh, you mentioned uh, uh, the uh, Congressman Schuster's uh, uh, proposals, is that within, as it is currently managed within the federal government, subject to the federal budget, subject to annual appropriations, the inability to plan for the long term, nothing happens. They're stuck. It's a little unfair to say nothing happens, but it's happening so slowly that when you compare us to the other countries that we fly to, we see it each and every day. Air traffic control systems in many of the countries that we fly to are superior uh, to that which we have here in the United States. And it's because of a lack of investment and a lack of managerial focus. Perhaps more congressmen should be put on planes and flown somewhere. Well, in fairness to them, I think they spend a lot of time on airplanes. I think this is really about um, uh, have, having the uh, uh, you know having the courage to take something that has been for for a long time seen as being uh, a sort of cornerstone of what the federal government provides uh, to being something that the federal government oversees and must regulate from a safety perspective, but which nonetheless is run on more modern managerial lines than the federal government's capable of doing. And is that possible in our lifetime, Mark? 
I hope so. I mean, certainly, uh, I, I think the omens are pretty good. Um, I think we've had an interesting and, and fair hearing from the Trump administration, as you've mentioned, uh, on Capitol Hill. There's quite a bit of support. Were you in that meeting? Uh, I was not, actually. We yeah. had a, a board meeting here in Honolulu that conflicted, so sadly I couldn't, couldn't yeah. uh, travel to Washington for it. But, um, and we have, uh, you know, on top of that, I, I think there's some interest amongst the air traffic controllers who are the real experts who, who uh, get to actually use the equipment. Um, I think there's a recognition amongst the air traffic controllers that there has to be a better way. All right, so I'm going to give you my, my airline consumer gripe. Sure. And, and by the way, I, I will preface this by saying I failed math in high school, but I can do basic arithmetic. Here it right. is. You go to any tower at any airport and say, okay, how many runways do you have? Let's say they have two. Two for landing, two for takeoff. Okay. How many airline departures can you accommodate, assuming beautiful weather, no delays, just, you know, it's nothing out there, right? Everybody's on time. How many departures can you handle per runway per hour? And they'll tell you something like 23, because you have to have two or three minutes separation between takeoffs, and there you go. There's your one hour, right? So why, this is my devil's advocate question, are the airlines allowed to schedule 34 departures at 8 o'clock in the morning? I mean, I mean, if you're on the 34th plane, you might as well bring a copy of War and Peace. You're not going to go anywhere. So in the United States, which is unlike other, yeah. uh, other, other countries, uh, we generally, there, there are, I think, five airports that are, that are exceptions to this rule. But in general, there are not slot constraints. So we let the free market essentially reign, and airlines can, uh, can schedule um, into an airport as they see fit. They obviously have to have gates. Um, but isn't that a little bit delusional? Because because you're in a situation where the runways can't accommodate 34 takeoffs I, in an hour. I, I can tell you that from our perspective, yeah. when we look at our, at our uh, punctuality performance, yeah. if we see a flight is systemically running late because of ATC-related issues... You reschedule the flight. We, we reschedule it because it costs us money. I mean, it's an expensive proposition to have an airplane right. sitting on the ground burning gas. But, you know, I go back. I'm, I'm, I'm not a hoarder, but I do keep things on file. I have my OAGs back from 1978. Right. And I go back and I take a look at American Airlines Flight 10, for example, which always left at 10 o'clock at night and got to Kennedy at 5.40 in the morning, right? Yeah. Right? Planes aren't flying any faster the last time I looked. You take a look at that flight today, it gets in 45 minutes later. Yeah, I, I, I think that's you're 100 percent right, right, and there are and, and I know for example that flights between uh, national airport as it was then to Laguardia in uh, 1959, I think. Oh were, God, were, I know where you know, you're going. Were, yeah. uh, had shorter lapse time with the, with turboprops operating them than they do with uh, modern jets today. Oh, and there's an argument about high speed trains that can that can solve that problem. It, it, absolutely, but I think the bigger problem is that. Our airways, our highways in the sky, the airways system, the air traffic control system uh, hasn't been invested in. And if you can imagine the United States highway system, if essentially very little additional capacity had been added to it from 1950s to the present day, you'll have some appreciation for why it takes longer, perversely. Uh, to fly um, in a jet airplane today between two relatively close cities than it did uh, 50 years ago. So if you're flying on the New York-Boston shuttle, the, ma- the actual branding mandate could be, we get you there perversely. <laughs> yes. Well, uh, this is one of the reasons I don't run a branding department. <laughs> <laughs> but I liked what you said, because yeah. it was appropriate. Yeah. Um, earlier in our conversation, we talked about Hawaii as a hub, actually, as opposed to just a point-to-point destination. And when you take a look at where you're flying out of here, and who else is flying here? 
you've got an airline out of Australia, Jetstar. Uh, uh, later this uh, this summer, we have uh, Air Asia X coming in from Kuala Lumpur with ridiculously low rates. We're seeing all these disruptor airlines in the U.S. and the mainland. Uh, an airline called Edelweiss that's flying from Zurich to Las Vegas, or of course Norwegian Air Shuttle, uh, and many others. Hainan Air, you know, going into Las Vegas and other cities like Seattle from China. Uh, is Hawaii going to get a, a situation where you're going to want to come to Hawaii just to connect? Um, you know, geography plays an important role in that. And the answer is yes, maybe, from uh, the South Pacific. Uh, it, it is a, a convenient connecting point if you're coming from an Australia or a New Zealand, uh, because it lies, broadly speaking, in a straight line, Hawaii does, uh, between those that part of our globe and North America. Um, that is not the case out of, for example, Japan. Uh, it, uh, the great circle distances are such that you pay a very substantial time penalty uh, if you come via Honolulu uh, from Japan on your way to the United States. So it depends on the geography. Right. Uh, but if you're heading south. If you're heading south, uh, it's a very convenient place to make a connection. And in days gone by, that was obliged of travelers before the advent of long-range airplanes. Uh, it used to be that if you were going to Sydney... You always uh, stopped in you Honolulu. You always stopped in Honolulu. Well, because you had to. You had to. You had to. The aircraft didn't have the range right. that they do today. So I think we're going to have uh, a, a, a little bit of, uh, of a return back to some of that connecting dynamic from those parts of the world, simply to get some of the smaller cities. We're the only airline flying to Brisbane, Australia, for example, from the United States. Um, uh, and uh, only U.S. airline uh, flying there. And so we, we, by connecting here in Honolulu, we can get you to any of 11 cities in North America really very, very effectively. And the reason why I'm asking this question about Hawaii as a hub is what we're seeing in ma many parts of Europe and even in the Gulf is that airlines are using their key cities as an opportunity as, as almost to bookend a trip. So, for example, Iceland Air is saying if you fly from the U.S. to Iceland, they'll give you a three-night stopover in Iceland, and they'll continue you on to Europe. TAP is saying if you go to Lisbon, we'll give you three nights there. Pick another one of four to five destinations that we fly to, we'll fly you there. Even uh, Qatar Air is doing the same thing in Doha. Uh, uh, Istanbul is happening with Turkish Air. Do you get to a point where you can actually sell me a ticket that says, if you want to go from uh, Los Angeles to Sydney, right? why don't you spend four days in Honolulu on the way down? Yeah, we, we actually do that. We have those sorts of programs ourselves. They're quite popular. As you say, people uh, want to. I, some interesting things are happening is people are, uh, as, as a society, we're increasingly aging. Um, but that is not a barrier to people traveling. In fact, they want to travel more and they want to experience uh, more destinations around the world. Uh, but at the same time, they want to break up their trip some. And they have, uh, with the, particularly the baby boomers coming to retirement age, uh, the luxury of some time. And so those kind of stopover itineraries are increasingly popular. And, and I think we're very well positioned, as you've acknowledged, to take advantage of that. And that's why we have programs. And you're them. pricing accordingly. And we price accordingly. Now, when we come back... We're going to talk about the war that's happening in the front of the cabin when we come back to the CBS Radio Travel Hour. Peter Greenberg here, back right after this. Ready to go? Okay, this is our last segment for okay, this. Very good. And we'll edit all this down later. Okay. Three, two. And welcome back to the CBS Radio Travel Hour. I'm Peter Greenberg, travel editor for CBS News with Mark Dunleavy. You know what? That's okay. I'm a, you know why I said Dunleavy? You know, you know yeah, why I, know. I said Dunleavy? Hugh Dunleavy. No, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Sorry, Mark. We'll start this again. That's okay. Okay. I know, but I'm not. Hold yeah. on a second. 
Here we go. Three. <laughs> and welcome back to the CBS Radio Travel Hour. Peter Greenberg here with Mark Dunkerley from Hawaiian Airlines. Uh, there's a war going on right now, not just with Hawaiian Air, but for the business traveler uh, on long-haul routes. And that war is taking place in the business class cabin. And you know, if you take a look at the evolution of business class, you go back 20, at least 20 years with British Airways coming out with their lie-flat seats on their 7-4s and, and some of their other aircraft. And then one by one, other airlines followed suit with different incarnations, different designs. Um, you've just done it uh, on your A330s. Uh, with new, uh, with a whole new business class section. I think it's 16 seats. Uh, I believe it's 16. It's 18. It's 18. Well, see, I told you I failed. There we go. Um, took you a while to do it, but now you've done it. Uh, is there a market for that uh, on your airline for people to pay that premium? To, because let's say, uh, look, a New York to to Honolulu flight's ten and a half hours or eleven going going west. Yeah, the, the short answer is yes, over a certain distance, and yeah. no, at less than that distance, candidly, is the way the math works right. out. And we made the decision to go to lie-flat seats once the density of our operation to these far-flung destinations uh, justified it. Um, and uh, after we had an opportunity to participate in designing of an entirely unique business class seat, because frankly, we found none of the offers that the other manufacturers, seat manufacturers have out there is sort of standard as suitable to our needs. And the reason for that is that for the most part, when people are traveling on business, what they hanker for is not only the comfort of a lie flat seat and uh, the amenities immediately around them, but also that sense of seclusion. If you're traveling on vacation, however, the chances are you're traveling with a spouse or family or friends. It's a different philosophy. It's a very different philosophy. And so uh, we have a business class seating arrangement that has all of the features. It's a very comfortable lie flat seat, um, but also still keeps that sense that uh, that people can be sitting together uh, and enjoying experience a trip out to Hawaii um, uh, together. Well, how many honeymoon couples are on your flights? Loads of them. <laughs> Absolutely loads of them. That's a very important market for us. Right. And you don't want to get the divorce started early, so you want to at least let them talk to each other while they are still talking to each other. Exactly. Okay, exactly. just double. How many different prototypes did you go through before you got to one you liked? So um, I think we went through probably about half a dozen. I think you. I, I think the big change, though, was more this philosophical one. It was stepping away from uh, a standard seat that that whose main feature was seclusion, and deciding to to just go in a diametrically diametrically opposed direction, uh, which is to say, we want to have our own seat. We wanted to embody our culture and our values here in Hawaii, we want it to, to be comfortable and we want it to be uh, an experience that can be shared uh, typically amongst couple, couples or family members. So let's talk about those six because I'd love to know about the first five, you know, the ones that didn't work, right? Did you actually take your employees and make them actually sleep in the seat? Yeah, yeah. We had a number of, uh, we, when we narrowed it down to, to a number of finalists, we did have uh, sleepovers. Know, here. Sleepovers. That's exactly what they were. And people get woken up in the middle of the night and have to go and change seats and then write reports the next day. And um, we did quite, we did quite a bit of that. Think of the, one of the five that was like universally hated and why. You know, I think what, I, um, I, one of the things that's very important uh, it, in a seat, I mean, I, it, seats are always a trade-off uh, in terms of space. 
Um, and I think probably the seats that worked least well were the ones where the kind of net to gross was very poor, where it took up a lot of space footprint-wise, but didn't actually give much of it uh, to the passenger who was there. There's a lot, you know, a lot of um, moving parts, m- moving parts, a lot of uh, a lot of bits jutting out, um, and things that weren't well thought through. So, for example, over 80% of us sleep on our side compared to sleeping um, on our backs. Uh, And so a number of seats advertised being lay flat, but they're sort of uh, sarcophagus-like. We made it a particular point to make sure there was enough room so that um, as most people do sleep on their sides, uh, it's it's more comfortable and that degree of thought went into it. Because, you know, the first lie flat seats were actually flat lies. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they really were. Well, they, those dreadful um, slope, those yes. slope lay flat seats oh my were God. Just, um, just appalling. I mean, you, you actually got off the plane hurting. Yes. You did. <laughs> yeah. Yes, I've, I've endured my uh, share of long haul flights. In those. All right. So when you start the, the reconfiguration, uh, what's your limit in terms of time duration on a plane before you'll say, okay, we're going to dedicate this plane with these seats? You know, it varies because no uh, airplane lives to fly on just one route right. alone. They they feed through the system. Uh, so we're about halfway through our, um, uh, our seat reconfiguration program. We'll be finished uh, in, about, in just less than a year from now. Um, right now, most of our international destinations, plus New York, uh, have the lie flat seats as, as, as a guarantee because we've been able to flow the aircraft through to those back and forth across those destinations. Uh, over over time, it'll be all of our long, all of our wide body aircraft will have it. And therefore, anytime you look and see an A330 uh, on your flight, you'll know it is. You'll know you get a lay flat seat. And your longest flight right now is to uh, is to Beijing. Uh, is our longest flight uh, followed by uh, Sydney, Australia? And this is one of the interesting features. And certainly, as you can tell from me, I have an English accent. I grew up with very much of an Atlantic focus. There is nothing. Like being in the Pacific to give you a different appreciation of the globe. Uh, we we live in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. Um, getting to the other side of the Pacific is a lot further than people think. New York, which we serve, is nowhere near our longest destination from right. Hawaii. So the the Sydney flight or the Beijing flight is about what fourteen. Um, no, they're both uh, they're both in the kind of twelve to thirteen hours okay. between twelve and thirteen hours with twin engine. With twin engines, right? Yeah. Let's hear it for uh, <laughs> Midway Island. Yeah, I mean, we we have we obviously follow the same rules that all airlines yeah. must uh, must follow in terms of um, alternates, and there are a number of alternates like Midway. Uh, well, Midway is a great Pacific. secret air, airport because Boeing, I think, every year spends an amazing amount of money to keep that airport open, just in case a twin engine plane has a problem and needs to land somewhere because it's that's it. Um, it is one of the airports that is key yeah. to being able to fly yeah. uh, west out of Hawaii. I mean, I remember last year, United Airlines, I think it was a 7-4, uh, lost an engine and, and, and had to land there. And the people on that plane had the best party ever for three days yes, because, because they weren't going anywhere. It's, it's an extraordinary place, Midway. I've not been, but I've oh, certainly need, had you reports. Need, you need to go. It's yeah. really amazing. And there was a day when your competitor, Aloha Airlines, actually had flights there. And, uh, and it's too bad that nobody's flying there now because what an amazing place it is. Indeed. I know. With smaller indeed. planes. Yes, indeed. With, extra, with extended operation wings. Yeah. Right? You know the yeah. deal. 
Mark Dunkerley, the CEO and president of Hawaiian Airlines. Thanks for joining us. Oh, it's great. Great to see you again. You got it. And we'll be back with more of the CBS Radio Travel Hour. Peter Greenberg here, travel editor, CBS News, back right after this. Network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Welcome back to the CBS Travel Hour with Peter Greenberg. Peter Greenberg here with you from ITB in Berlin. I'm joined by an old friend of mine. I won't tell you how long ago we go back, but we go back a long time. Uh, he's the chief executive of a small little airline that has no growth potential whatsoever called Qatar Air. Akbar Al-Bakr, how are you, sir? Thank you. I'm good, my friend. And we should not say how long we have been together because then it will expose our age. <laughs> You're right. But in all seriousness, you've had explosive growth in your airline, um, not just in terms of your fleet, but in terms of your routes. Um, and how many cities in the United States do you fly to now? We fly to over 11 cities in the United States and, and growing. And, of course, the real battle out there now, if you're to listen to certain U.S. airlines, is about how they're in an unfair competitive disadvantage because of the Gulf carriers, including you. Uh, I don't believe that uh, we are giving them unfair uh, uh, disadvantage against us. As a matter of fact, it is a making of their own because they have all product, dilapidated uh, cabins, uh, 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 cutting costs, but making bumper profits, the largest profits in the history of aviation. Well, I so I don't know why they are com- they are complaining about it. Plus, they don't fly to Doha. They don't fly to uh, to 99% of our network. So we are actually providing easy, seamless uh, 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 travel experience to the American public. And at the same time, you're a member of the One World Alliance. Part of the the American part of exactly right. part. But unfortunately, uh, they are being swayed by one individual who is still uh, in backstage influencing things. I thought that... Uh, you talk about Delta Airlines. Exactly. I thought that uh, the gentleman leaving Delta, that the new Delta management will look at us in a more positive way and try to cooperate with us. I am even today ready to cooperate with Delta and, and give their passengers uh, a network expansion on Qatar Airways, especially that we operate uh, 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 daily to, to Atlanta, to their major hub. Oh, but so, what, yeah. what I would also like to mention, that you know the United CEO mentioning that uh, he doesn't understand why we operate uh, to United States while well, we have only 30, 40 passengers in our airplane. I think, frankly speaking, he must be smell- smelling glue. He should go <laughs> and see the MIDT and see what high load factors we are carrying out of the United States, serving the American public. Well, so much of what you've done with your root network, and same thing with Emirates and Etihad, is the connectivity through your hub. So, for example, if I needed to go from Hong Kong to Nairobi, I go through Doha. It's a very easy connection. You should ask this question to these three American carriers. If you want to go from United States to Nairobi, how do you go? And they don't have an answer. Because they don't fly it. Exactly. So why wouldn't it be, I'll ask the devil's advocate question, why wouldn't it be in their best interest to either co-chair with you or, or form some sort of an alliance where you do provide that connectivity? Well, I think you should ask them. They can benefit from our network. They can make money without flying to these places. We are ready to cooperate with them. We are ready to co-chair with them. You know, Qatar Airways is an airline that is no threat to them at all. What they have done is by consolidating themselves, they have removed capacity so they can keep on charging extremely high rates to the American public, make bumper profits, 
but give them crap product. And this is unfair to the American public because they deserve a lot more. And I'm, I'm very glad that uh, President Trump is, is talking about this. Well, what's interesting is that he just had a meeting with all the airline CEOs and your name came up. And yes, because, because he is very frank, he is very clever businessman, and he knows how to create competition uh, to serve the American public. He wants America first. Well, and we in yeah. Qatar Airways do keep that in mind and for us, America is always first. Well, what's interesting to me is that when they asked him about you in particular and also the other airlines, meaning Emirates and Etihad, he said, guys, I hear you, but they buy a lot of American airplanes. Exactly. Whilst they complain about us, they go and buy European airplanes, Brazilian airplanes, Canadian airplanes, and then they talk about America first. What a, what a, what a, you know, I, I don't know what word to really use. What Hip, a hypocrisy. Hypocritical. And we've said it at the same time. <laughs> so... Where do you see your network expanding now? Because you're going to 11 U.S. cities as it is. Are there more U.S. cities? Or yes, we have already uh, announced that we'll be going to Las Vegas from January. Uh, we'll be going to Detroit soon. We will be going to other uh, couple of American destinations, which I'm not uh, ready to tell you. But let me tell you something. That I have a huge queue of uh, CEOs of airports in the United States. Who are knocking on your door. Knocking on my door. And, and requesting us to, to fly to their, to their airports. So what is this fuss about? I don't understand. Well, I think one of the reasons is, and we've seen this change in America, where you see U.S. cities who are not being well served or that are not being well served by the U.S. carriers, meaning they've cut capacity. And so the, for those airports, they're appealing to airlines like you to do ultra-long-haul nonstop service because they have the space. They need you. Not only they have the space, they have the diaspora of uh, countries like India, Pakistan, uh, other countries in the Middle East and Africa, where people cannot travel. And they have to pay exorbitant fares to these three American carriers to carry their passengers over their JV partners. Well, their JV Joint partners, yeah. their JV partners, the partnership is only across uh, the Atlantic. It's not in the entire network. And I can prove to you by statistics, validated statistics by IATA, that those airlines individually are carrying more fifth and sixth freedom traffic than all the three Gulf carriers put together. Well, let's talk about that because I don't think many people understand what fifth freedom is. Uh, for example, the other day I needed to go from Sao Paulo to, to Buenos Aires. I took Turkish Air. That's a fifth freedom flight. Exactly. Right. Uh, Emirates has a flight that's going to start this month from New York or Newark actually to Athens. Yeah. Also fifth freedom. fifth freedom. Yeah. Yeah. And you have it. Yes. No, we don't. We, we have fifth freedom over our network. That's what I'm we saying. Don't, we don't operate the United States from an intermediate, no, no, intermediate I know, I know point. But I'm saying but you have however, it in the network. Yes, you do. but sure. in the network. For example, if you, you know, a lot of um, uh, Americans go to the Himalayas, to, the, to Nepal, how do you go if you depend on these three carriers? You will, not, you will have to do three stops if you want to go to Nepal with them. With Qatar Airways, you do the shortest time. And you only do one stop. And of course, don't forget that you get a five-star service, which you will never you, you get. You had to give me that plug, didn't you? You had to plug. Well, I had. I have to tell <laughs> you, you this. You did it, didn't you? Yes. But you know that I always like to rub the salt in the wound. Oh, oh yeah. You're good at that. You are good at that. <laughs> but for example, I needed to get somebody from New York to Bangkok. And not only the easiest way to go, but the least expensive way to go in coach was with you. Exactly. And, and, and I assure you, that we are not uh, losing on that, but we are giving you the best value for your money. 
we are also making making profit, but we are giving an opportunity to save some dollars that you can spend in Bangkok. Now, let's talk about this for a second. You have a pretty large fleet, a, a diverse fleet, right? You've got Boeing equipment, you've got Airbus equipment, right? Yes. Uh, but you've got it spread out, right? You, yes. You've got A380s. Yes. You've got triple uh, sevens. Yes. Right. You got A320s. Yes, and A330s. Yes. And A350s. But, but of course, A350s are replacement for the A330s. Right. And the Dreamliners are replacement uh, for the A330 200s. And you, are we, you were the launch customer, weren't you, for the A350? We were the launch customer. We are still today the largest customer of the Airbus uh, A350. And where will you fly that plane? Well, we are already flying that aeroplane to Australia, we, to one destination in Australia. We are flying it into Europe. We are flying it into London. We are flying it into United States. Uh, we fly to uh, both Boston and New York. Our second frequency to JFK is a 350. Our uh, service to, uh, uh, to Boston is an Airbus A350. And the A380 is on the London route? The A380 is on the, on the London route. It is on the Paris route. It is on Bangkok route. It is on Sydney route and soon on Melbourne route. And eventually... Uh, one flight uh, will be to JFK. And then last but not least, before we take a quick break, you now hold the record for the world's longest flight. Yes. Doha to Auckland. Yes. That is one long flight. It is the longest flight vis-a-vis uh, -vis the distance, but it is also longest flight vis-a-vis uh, -vis the duration. It is 17 and a half hours. Have you done it? I have done it. I have done the inaugural flight because I always go on inaugural flights in order for me to be present when we arrive and show because uh, what we are because I'm the ambassador of my country and my airline. Did you have to do something special on that flight? No, we didn't have to do anything special because we, in all our flights we do everything special. For Here we passengers. go, there's another plug. Will you stop that? <laughs> no, but you have to figure out the psychographics, the endurance, the humidity, all those things come into play. Yes, uh, the, uh, the, the, the amount of meals we have to carry, the amount of water we have to carry, the amount of amenities we have to carry, so that the passenger experience is always seamless, that they enjoy the trip. Even though it is longest, they feel that they are on a holiday on both Qatar Airways. Is that another plug? Yes. Oh, my God. Well, before we take a break, when we come back, what I want to talk to you about is business class, because that's where the wars are really being fought right now. Every airline now is unveiling some new form of the business class product. Talking to Akbar Al-Bakr, the chief executive for Qatar Airways, we'll be back with more from the ITB in Berlin right after this. Network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Welcome back to the CBS Travel Hour with Peter Greenberg. Peter Greenberg here with you from ITB in Berlin. We've been speaking with Akbar Al-Bakr, the chief executive of Qatar Airways. Help me out here. Is it Qatar Airways or Qatar? Qatar Airways. It is. Okay. It will be difficult for you to pronounce. No, Qatar. 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 Yes. Was that better? Yes. Okay, good. You've just unveiled a new business class product. Now, there are a lot of airlines out there that are doing that. United Airlines just did Polaris. There's some other airlines. What's different about yours? Because from an airline economic point of view, 
if you can fill the business class section of the plane, that's where you make your profit. First and foremost, Peter, we have uh, named our product as Q Suite because, frankly, it is a suite and it is a first class product being sold as business class. You have total privacy if you're individual. If you have a privacy, if you are two people together, if you are a family of four, you can then create a, a private jet experience where you can sit facing each other with an open cabin uh, with privacy surrounding around you. And if you are on your honeymoon, you can convert the two seats into a double bed. But keep in mind something that when we convert it into double bed, a sign will come on, quite please. <laughs> so you should not be making noises. I knew you were going to say that. So, But what happens if you're not on your honeymoon and you just meet somebody on the plane? Well, uh, if you meet somebody on the airplane and if that somebody wants to uh, sleep next to you as a double bed, you can also convert because this is, uh, uh, you know, uh, a decision made by two adult individuals, which Qatar so this is does the, not like so to So this control. is the consenting adult flight. Uh, well, uh, you can call it whatever you want. <laughs> but I, as a CEO, want to provide you all the facilities that other airlines cannot. And what we did, Peter, this but time... In terms of the design, though, Akbar, in terms of the design... This is what I want yeah, to tell you. Yeah. What we did is because in the past... We we always raise the bar. If you really go to see, we were the first airline in the in the world uh, after British Airways to have uh, horizontal flat seats. Life flat. Exactly, in our first class. We were the first airliner in the world after British Airways to have a life flat seat in business class. We were the first airliner in the world to have a lounge on board our airplane, which we introduced in 2005. And all my competition started to copy me. So what we did this time, that we wanted to really once again raise the bar, but do it in a way that nobody will be able to copy us. So we patented the seats. Not only we patented the seats, but we also patented parts of the seats. So you will not be able to copy certain aspects of the seat. And we give you the biggest real estate you have around a business class cabin. So so in all this, we have been very successful. And, and it took you three years. Uh, well, we developed it over three years yeah. because the development started by having something made out of plywood. Then we had something made out of uh, fiberglass. Then we started to s start putting the space around it. And then gradually we came to what the product is finally today. I'm going to assume that you went through about 16 different prototypes before you came to one that you like, knowing you. Uh, no, actually, we didn't need to go through 16. We needed to do many prototypes of right. the same product to get eventually to the quality and the finishes that we will accept on our airplanes. In designing this new product, what was the biggest surprise to you that you didn't expect that you were, wow, now that's a wow? Well, the, 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 there was no wows for me because every time I saw the product in its evolution, I did changes to materials, to colors, and of course to the amenities around the seat because we wanted to cover everything that a passenger wants Okay, so what's, so what's the one thing you said, I need that changed right away, that will not do? Well, it was uh, finishes, materials, and of course, the quality of the finish. Because every seat manufacturer will try to give you what you want, but they will always try to cut corners in quality. And this is what we will never accept. And so, we yeah. also want to do something that is lighter and easy to maintain. You can always have fancy things around the seats in an aeroplane but the maintainability is is the difficult thing that you really need to be able to 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 grasp yeah because you can't have it breaking down no we can't because you rather not give a product to a passenger than give a broken product that you cannot look after exactly and yet you design this in such a way that people have total privacy 
Exactly. You can have total privacy. So if you've done including that, including in- a do not disturb sign. So don't go there. <laughs> so if you if you want to be left alone in peace in your in your private cabin, right. you can put a, a sign on where the cabin crew knows that you don't want to be disturbed, like in a hotel. Now you said this is a business class product, which really a first class product sold as a business class seat. Yeah. What about first class? Well, we have first class only on our A380s. Uh, I was right when nearly 14 years ago, I decided to remove first class from all Qatar Airways airplanes and only have a two class uh, uh, aircraft. And now I can see that many airlines in the world are going that way, but 12 years too late. But their business class we will have yeah. We will have first class only flying on our A380s. And that's and it? that to a very limited number of first class, only eight seats. Wow. But how, does, how do those seats stack up against the Q-suite? Well, with, with that, there is another 40% more real estate around the seat. The seats are wider than the current business class seat. The seat is actually, our first class seat is the widest first class seat in the industry. So, and it has privacy, but not full privacy like you have in the business class. So you've actually designed this specifically for that? Exactly. We did it so that in order that we always differentiate, but at the same time be in the forefront in the industry of the product. Who's coming up as your competitor to compete with us? None, because it's patented, so they cannot copy it. So they will not be able to do it. <laughs> Is the patent shown right on the seat? Do you have a big stamp on there? It says, no, we don't. Hmm. But uh, if uh, both uh, the, manu- the, man- the manufacturing industry in the, in the seats... Uh, business know that uh, this is a patented product. Right. Don't touch it. Exactly. Akbar Al-Bakr, the chief executive of Qatar Airways. Did I get it right this time? Yes, perfect. Better, okay. That concludes this episode of the CBS Radio Travel Hour. I'm Peter Greenberg, travel editor for CBS News, and we'll see you next time. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.